the, um, the Word of God with y'all today. And, oh wait, my bad. Um, and I don't want to say that, um, you know, I, I haven't been here for very long, but um, it's been a full blessing, an absolute joy to be fellowshipping with the body here. Um, it, it, it felt like I've been here for a lot longer than I have, and I did really do love this church a lot. Um, it has a special faith in my heart. Um, so we will be in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, but this is really a summary of the whole book because this verse is really the heartbeat of Deuteronomy. However, before we jump into the main text, it's essential that we did the context of the book of Deuteronomy. So this is chapter 1 and 2 really laid the groundwork of Deuteronomy, uh, Israel's journey to the promised land through the wilderness. And Moses reminds um, them, the people of Israel, that God had given them the land to, to take the land. But when Israel got close to the land, they saw the people who were living in them. They saw the, um, that they were plunder, that they have more of a well-built army, and they were afraid. They were like, we can't take the land. So they actually rebelled against God's commandment to take and possess the land. So God punished the people and declared that only their children will inherit the land. So fast forward to chapter 2, 40 years later, and this is really Moses' last words to the people of Israel. And it's really a retelling of the law to a new generation that haven't heard of, um, that haven't experienced the hardship of Egypt, that haven't seen all the different stuff that their parents went through throughout the wilderness. So this is a reminder to remain faithful to the covenant-keeping God. So with that in mind, if you have a Bible, please turn to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them at a sign on your hand and they shall be at a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So the important fundamental question that this text really is addressing is how should the people of God follow after him? Um, this is the key question to all the law and all the commandment in Deuteronomy. This is how they should follow God. And we will see the question answer in the form of a command known as the Shema. So the Shema get a name from the really the first two words of verse 4, to hear. But the context of to hear does not mean merely to listen, but it also means to obey. It, it's give the impression you listen and you also need to obey these words. And the three simple idea in the text where we are just to delve deeper into to really answer the impression. How should the people of God follow after him? 
and the three ideas are the focus of the command, the totality to the command, and the expression of the command. So with that in mind, let's jump into the third point. And we see this, the focus of the command, it really rooted in the first verse when it said, Hail Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, you know, I think the, the first thing we think about when we see that, like, okay, why is this here? Why didn't Moses that jump to verse 5 and that give the command? Why is this phrase so important? Well, I think there are two reasons why this is so important. For one, this line shows his uniqueness and his greatness. God shared his glory with no one. Secondly, the people were about to enter a land that did not worship after God, um, the Canaanites. And this is a reminder to not to stray away to the false religion as you enter into the foreign land, but to stay faithful to the one through God. And I think the book of Deuteronomy laid this out very freely throughout the whole book. We see in chapter 4, um, this warning, um, beware let you act corruptly by making a carven image for yourself. And then jump down to verse 19, we see that same idea, I beware let you raise your eye to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the star and all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God had allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. So God had given them all the possession. The question is, are they there to worship the creation rather than the creator? Um, and we also see that the people in the land, the Canaanites, who already lived there, um, they will turn the people away from worshiping Yahweh. Um, and we see in chapter 7, for they will turn away your son from following me to serve other gods. And chapter 10 is really a reminder of the focus of Yahweh. And Moses said, he is your praise, he is your God. The focus is to Yahweh, and he is the one that you should worship to realign the focus to the one through God. Now, I think when we talk about the Shema and when we hear the words, they are very familiar words. I think it's also important to point out that many Muslims will use this verse to deny the Trinity. They will say, oh, you know, the oneness of God, so the, the Trinity cannot be a reality. But in doing so, they miss the context of why this phrase is even there. This phrase is not a denial of the Trinity, but as seen earlier, show emphasis on who Israel should follow. This is a call to remain faithful to the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and the God who taking them into the promised land. Also to note that the Trinity does not affirm that there are three gods, but express the essence and personhood of the one through God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to really unpack the Trinity, but we keep in mind when it comes to the inspired word of God, we have to believe all of it. We, don't, we can't just pit and choose, okay, I'm going to believe in the oneness of God, but when they talk about uh, the Trinity, I'm not going to believe that. No, we can't do that. We have to take all of it and unify all the tests of Scripture. And we see that God had revealed 
a oneness in the form of the Trinity. So why discussing the direction of the command, we must also talk about the command itself, which is love. We see in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God. So the command is to love. And that raised the question, why should we love? Why should we love God? This love is not an arbitrary command. Not that like, okay, love me for no reason. But it is rooted in God's covenant love for his people. In terms of example, in the book of Deuteronomy, again in chapter 4, we see, because he loved your father and chosen the offering after them. Also in chapter 7, it said, it wasn't because you were more in numbers than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chosen you. For you are a few of all the people, but it is the, because the Lord loved and kept and is keeping the oath and, that he swore to your father. They promise that he had established with Abraham and he loved the people and he is faithful to keep his promises. So we, we ought to see additionally in chapter 7, this same, this same idea. And lastly, in chapter 10, um, we see in verse 15, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father and chosen the offering after them, you above all the people, and you are this, um, this day. So this love is not this arbitrary command, but actually rooted in, first, God loved the people. So that's why we should love God. And I think C.L. Lewis put it so well when he said, he loved us not because we are lovable. There's nothing good in us that say, yeah, we are special, so that God should love us. No, it's because he is love. It's part of the very nature of God that um, expresses the idea of love. From eternity past, the Father loved the son. So this is the, the concept of love and not like a created thing, um, but it actually what is rooted in the very nature of God and expressed to his people. So the question is, why should you love God? Now, we are not the children of Israel. We have not been rescued from Egypt or had seen stuff from the wilderness um, but I think it's very evident that the same covenantal God who brought the people out of Egypt is the same covenantal God who has saved and redeemed us out of people. In John 3.15, a very well-known passage, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in 1 John 4, it's kind of repeat this idea in verse 19. We love, why? Because he first loved us. The root of our affection to God is always first placed on God because God loved us. So that raised another affection. What is love? So we know why we should love, but what is love? And I think we did a lot of time, we, we let culture define what is love a lot of time. We, we kind of integrate um, cultural definition of love in the biblical definition of love. And we can't do that. 
love in, in not merely emotionalism or a warm, funny feeling. You know, it was Valentine's Day. I think, I think that was very ironic that I'm talking about the love of God. Um, and it wasn't really planned for that, but um, here, here we are. So, but I think we, we base love a lot of time, right? We base, you know, Valentine's Day, oh, the warm, fuzzy feeling. And we take that idea and then we put it on God. They're like, oh, I have this feeling. But love is way more deeper than that. It, way, it has way more substance than that. And I think the Psalms paint a beautiful picture of a heart that loved God. And the three things that I want us to see when we're talking about the love, um, love that we should have for God. And in Psalm 73, the first thing I want us to see is loyalty. Love is a loyalty to a relationship. It said, and who have I, I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God in my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So love is this, this deep commitment for God based on his character. It also obedience. Um, in Psalm 119, we see, with my whole heart, I seek you. So again, that idea of loyalty. Let me not wander from your commandment. I have stored up your word in my heart. It is joyful obedience. Um, the idea of love is not independent from obedience. It actually, our, our, our affection for God should actually make us obey God. And in the psalm, it said, it is joyful obedience. It's not like it's a hard thing that I should obey God, but I want to obey God. So, and lastly, we see that it is a desire rooted in food. And I think you see that in the other psalms, but um, in Psalm 40, we see that again. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. This, this the life is rooted in the law that is within um, the psalmist's heart. And then also in Psalm 19, um, verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. And just to do a little bit of context, it referring to the law of the Lord. Um, earlier in that chapter. So we see that love is a deep commitment. It is obedience, a, a, a joyful obedience. And we ought to see it's a desire rooted in the word. So we discuss the importance of loving God and what love truly is. But to what degree should we love God? And that brings to the second point, the totality of to the command. And we see in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we, we see that it really is this idea is expressing your whole being. The idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, it, it really it emphasizing everything. <laughs> everything that you have shall love God. And that we're not going to spend a lot of time on defining these things in the most um, meticulous way, but I think it's important to talk about. So when, when the Bible and the Old Testament talk about the heart, it usually 
is kind of the idea of, in Hebrew, the seat of the mind. So it usually have the phrase, um, the thoughts of your heart, kind of like idea. And we see in chapter 11, chapter 15, the idea, lay up the words of mind in your heart. And then also in chapter 15, unworthy thought in your heart. So the idea of the mind and the heart are associated with each other. And then the idea of desire is usually associated with the soul. So in our culture today, we usually think of heart and desire as being um, the same thing. But really, in, in the Hebrew, the soul was associated with the desire. It nuances, it, you know, it's, it's still referring to the same thing, your mind, your desire, and then also... Um, the might, the capability in a commitment. It, it's your will to keep a commitment. But again, all this is emphasizing your whole being, everything, your whole commitment. So I think that raises another question. Why is this an emphasis on the whole being? Um, and I think the reason why because there are things that draw your affection away from God. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see three examples. There is fear, pride, and a longing, or desires. And so we don't look at a couple of those. The first one is fear. In chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, we see, if you say in your heart, the nation are greater than I, how can I dispose them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. And the same thing in chapter 20, let not your heart faint, do not fear or panic or be in bread of them, for the Lord your God, he is he, is he who did with you to fight against your enemy, to give you victory. So what's the point here? When we are afraid, does that si siphon the love that we have for God? When we are afraid, we usually think of like, the idea of self-preservation, or we think about, okay, how can I protect myself? And we're really not thinking about God a lot of times. You know, God is kind of like um, not the forefront of our mind when we are afraid. We're thinking about, okay, all the earthly things I need to take care of, and I'm just thinking about myself at that point. So are we letting fear actually siphon the love that we have for God? I think the second point is pride. We see in chapter 8, Beware, let you say in my heart, my power and the might of my hand had gotten me this wealth. And this is so common in um, the Old Testament that we see the children of Israel. The Lord, you know, the people of Israel are afraid. The Lord delivered them, take them into the land or deliver them from an enemy and then they forget about God's goodness. And instead of loving God, they boast in their own contentment, and they forget that God is the one who delivered them to the land. You, you know what keeps us from loving God more? It's because we love ourselves even more. We tend to love ourselves so much that we forget about who actually delivered us, who actually it ought to all things for his will. But everything is about us. 
And chapter 29 taught about this as well, but it taught about this idea of the stubbornness of the heart. In, in, in verse 19, it said, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead me to um, sweeping away a moisture and by a light. So that the idea of, you know, I go into this with so much confidence and I am not even thinking about God whatsoever. It's that like, I can do this. And when we love ourselves, when we have the idea of pride in our lives, we tend to, we tend to forget about loving God. We tell he is not your priority at that point. You are. And we have to ask ourselves, is that us? Are we doing that? I think when life gets hard and we can't see the light in the end of the tunnel, we tend to be like, God, help us. And then when we see the light in the end of the tunnel, we actually get closer, we start to think, well, I got myself out of that mess. But in reality, it is God who has got us. And we need to remember that. And the third idea is longing or desire. In chapter 12, verse 30, they take care that you be not instead to follow after them. So follow after them, the people in, um, that was in the land already, the Canaanites, and you, basically you asking this idea of how did the nations serve their God? So they taught to see the, the nations and how they um, worship um, all the different foreign gods. And like, well, let, let adopt some of those things in the way we, we worship the one and true God. So they taught to add on to what God have commanded them or add on false religion with that. Um, we thought they saw these things and then they adapted those things. So are we being blown away? In chapter 4, 17, it said, but if your heart turn away and you will not hear, but are blown away to worship other God and serve them. Our lesser loves drawing away your affection for God. And we, we do the same thing. We see the all the stuff that the world provides, and then we adapt those things into our Christian life. And we add on to what the spiral word um, have given us. There is a warning in Deuteronomy that could sit times. The warning start with take care less, and then it did a long illustration of what you should not do. So to summarize that, it's take care, let you fall. It's the idea that you need to be paying attention. You need to actually be alert and actually be vigilant in how you do these things. So we talk about the nature of the command it upward. The love is focused on God. It is inward. Our whole being should love God. And now we are going to talk about the outward nature of the command or the expression of the command. And we, this really is rooted in verse 6 through 8. And if we think that um, there are a lot of texts in that, and it can be some kind of daunting or overwhelming, like, well, not a lot. Um, but this, if you break it down, there are really three things that we can see. There, there is a duty to keep the commandment close to you. There is a diligence to refrain food to others. And then naturally, there is a delight in the manner you do these things. So the first thing is the duty. 
And in verse 6, we see, we see that the words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. It doesn't get any closer than your heart. It doesn't, the word of God is so close to the children of Israel that on their heart. And then we also see the idea in verse 8 through 9, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. The idea is keep the word of God close to you. Remember to keep the word of God so close to you. And the sad reality is that Jewish people, when we're talking about verse 8, they will literally take the, the law and they will put it on their forehead and they will put it on their, their, um, their hand and they think, oh, well, we're keeping the law. We're we, we keeping it. But they miss the point of why this command is there. And not just, oh, we have the law on our forehead to, to keep it close, but it's an expression of obey the law, keep the law. Um, and even though the word was so close to them, it was so far from them. And I think we have the danger to do that ourselves. You know, a, a lot of us, we own a Bible. We, we own several Bibles. And um, we have access to the word, and it's so close to us. We have it on our, our phones now that the word of God is so close to us. But is it so far from us in the application of our lives? Are we actually living out the word? And I think that seeing the children of Israel and how it was close to them, but yet we see throughout the biblical text, it was so far away from them, is a warning to us at the church, are we doing the same thing? So I hope that we are not led um, by, by thinking that we have the word of God, but yet we are not obeying it. So... Also, we see that there is a diligence to proclaim through to others. And there are really two ways that this is expressed. In verse 7, we see that there is um, a diligence to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, I'm, I'm not a father and I don't have any kids, but there is an obligation to parents to pass the baton to their children, to teach them. You know, you are not, you know they might not believe, they might only God can give belief to a person. You know, you are not in charge of um, granting salvation to them, but it is your responsibility to raise them in the knowledge of God. And I think um, you did the sense of the family, and we see in our culture today that that, in, that are not happening, even in Christian homes. You know, you see in Christian homes that, you know, the idea of, oh, I'm just going to let my kids fiddle it out. And I'm not even going to share the fruit to them. You know, that is becoming more a common theme um, in our society. But the thing is, are we, are we actually sharing the fruit to them? And I think even at verse 7, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The idea of a, you know, if written, it's with you all the time. You are sharing this all the time. And even when you get to this idea um, in, in application, we see, are we, are we doing that? 
is the life we live in church the life we live in outside of church? Are we definitely on a math zone when we, when we talk about the Bible in church? Or are we actually, is this what we do all, all the time? So we're running out of time, so I really want to delve, um, I find it to be pretty fit with these, a delight in the manner you do these things. Um, I think that is very obvious that by you shall love, so that follows um, after all the commands. And I don't really want to point out two examples, a good example and a bad example. And the good example is rooted in the Psalms again, in chapter 1, verse 2, but he delight in the law of the Lord, and he, on his law he meditate on it day and night. So there is a delight to keep the word of God. Secondly, I think the bad example, and the sad reality, the bad example, is the children of Israel. Um, as you remember, as Sam took us through Malachi, in chapter 1, verse 2, it said, I have loved you, said the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And then throughout the whole book, it taught, you see the, the indifference, the coldness, the contempt of the people of Israel as they fly to obey the law. So we see this idea of a good example of a heart that freely delight in following God and a heart that, that, okay, I guess we have to follow God. So, but I think this is where the rubber meets the road. So this is not a hard text in terms of reading it. We, 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 this is not the first time we have read this text, and it, it's pretty straightforward, you know, command, you shall love the Lord your God. Right? Okay. But yet, this, why is it so hard to follow this command in our lives? And there are really two things that I really want to flush out, is that we often think love and obedience are right, on two opposite sides, right? a pendulum, that you either love or you obey. For example, right, oh, I love God. And it's right there, emotionalism, like, yeah, I'm on fire for God, but my life does not look like this. Or you might stand on the other side and you say, oh, I obey God, and you view it right, chat lips, and they're like, wow, well, how much I love in God right now. And it's that, it becomes like leaderism. You think, I'm earning God's love. I'm earning his favor. And, and become pride in saying, man, I'm, I'm such a good person. And the second danger is, um, the second problem is when we find it, we don't find it hard to love God. So I think John 14 did the answer, did clarity to both of these things. First, if you love me, you will keep my commandment. Love and obedience are not the polar opposite things. They actually, if I love God, that should actually give me a passion and a desire to want to, I will want to keep the commandments of God. Um, and we see that in Paul's life. He said, the reason why he went out to um, all the nation is that the love of Christ compels me to go. So in obedience, he went, but it was fueled by his, his deep devotion to the Lord. So I hope we see the connection between love and obedience, and not really these two separate things. And the danger is to separate those things in our life. The second thing is, why do I find it hard to love God? Well, I, I think, it, to that some um, clarity, we have, the, we have the flesh that 
we, did, we are saved from the sin um, in our lives, but we still have the flesh. The old nature is still in us, and it wages war with the new spirit that we have been given. And the temptation is, I'm not to love God in the flesh, but we have been given the spirit. And in verse 15, there the answer, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We have the Spirit of God. The problem lies in when we don't actually rely on the Spirit of God. God did not give a, a commandment to love him, and then that's kind of like, okay, now you figure it out. No, he given us this command to love him, and then he gave us the way and the ability to enable us, to help us, to actually love him. So what did that look like? And I'd be, I'd be the first one to say that a lot of time when I wake up in the morning, I, I think, okay, how, how can I love God, stuff like that. And I did through my devotion, or I do stuff like that. But I never prayed, like, God, help me to love you more. Yeah, I think it's easier to say, God, help me to love other people. But when it comes to help me to love you, that's something that I'm still learning. That's something that I'm still, like, God, I need to ask you to help me to love you more. And one of my seminary professors, he, he said that um, um, he said that are we going to a place where God promised his grace? And where have God promised his grace? Well, he promised his grace in prayer. And are we going before the throne room and asking God, like, God, my, I love you, but help me to love you more today. I blow my affections for you. So, how this leads us to the final theme. How should the people of God follow after him? We should follow after God by loving him wholly through keeping and knowing his word and sharing it with others. And if I can add anything to that, it will be with the power of God. We cannot do this. We can't see this and like, okay, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and live this out. No, we have to do this with the, the power that he provides. And are we asking for his grace to be able to do that? Um, so let's do it in prayer. Dearly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the proof of it. Lord, God, this, as we read the text, it's a very simple, straightforward um, text but yet it is so hard for us to actually abide by it. But God, you have given us the spirit to help us to bear fruit, to actually love others, but also to love you. And we cannot love you in our flesh, but we must love you in the spirit. So I definitely that you would help us to do that. And God, I definitely that you will be our vision. You will be that really are everything as we um, go throughout the day, as we go throughout the week, that the, the life we live in church and the passion that we might have at, while we are at church, that that will translate um, as we go throughout the day as well. Lord, we love you and help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please stand with me and let's pray these words uh, with a song, Be Thou My Vision.